Welcome to this last show of 2019 of This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. And I'm Zadie Stavely. Co-host Louis Friedberg is away. At the top, you heard the cheerful voices of TK through third graders at Stege Elementary in Richmond. A school that our reporter, Ashley Smith, has been following as teachers and administrators try to transform the school after decades of neglect and low performance. Her latest piece about teachers in Stege appeared this week. We'll be returning later in the show to hear more from these children. Today, we'll be talking about a state audit that found that it's difficult to know whether money targeted for low-income, foster and homeless students and English learners is actually reaching them. Stick around to hear about that. But first, for college students across California, the winter holiday break follows the unjoyful final exam week. For first-year students, the period called dead week through exams can be especially stressful. And that's particularly true for the first students and their families to go to college. Along with feeling like they're in a pressure cooker from the normal demands of final papers and late-night study sessions, many of these students may be short on money and food, they have to work part-time, they're feeling guilty for having to cut back on home obligations. John, you wrote this week about an unusual approach that a charter high school in San Jose has taken to try to ease the anxiety of its alumni this time of year, now that they're off at college. Yes, Downtown College Prep, which is the oldest charter school in San Jose, has an alumni success counselor and part-time mentors who deliver care packages to high school grads who are now freshmen in community colleges, the CSU and UC campuses. They even mail packages to students at out-of-state colleges. You know, it's a way for them to stay in touch with students at what's a critical time of year. So I went to California State University East Bay in Hayward with the alumni success counselor to see the students opening their packages. Microwave popcorn, all right. I love these peanut M&Ms. Wow. Ah, sopa maruchan. <laughs> it reminds me of high school all over oh, again. I got one more thing. I got an instant lunch. Cup of noodles, sour patches pack, got some lay chips, a hand sanitizer, pocket size, perfect to carry around, a Capri Sun, got a to-go coffee mug, and then a little Christmas gift goodie with Oreos, microwave popcorn, socks, Mexican cookies, and a letter from Ms. Grant. Thank you. My name is Daniel Silva, and I am a freshman at Cal State East Bay, and I am studying psychology. Care packages, it's kind of a, a reminder of, you know, we went through this with you, and we're still here for you, and, you know, we still have your back, and we're in your corner. So, like, for me, it's motivation to, you know, keep going, because you know that when you feel like you don't know how to keep going forward, or you feel like you're falling back, or just losing track of the way you want to go, Receiving this is kind of like, you know, we, we're here. Like, if you need a talk or you need anything, like, you know, we, we still have you. We care. And kind of reminds me why you're here and what you're doing. John, that was really powerful. Was Daniel the first one in his family to go to college? Actually, his brother was accepted at Humboldt State, but the family couldn't afford it, so he didn't go. And Daniel feels that family obligation when he's at school. I'm, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for my family. And I'm taking advantage of the opportunity my brother didn't get. 
John, why is Downtown College Prep doing this? What did they tell you? Well, I asked Dulce Grant that question. She's the alumni success counselor at DCP, as they call it. She said she brings the packages because it's really pretty common to have a hard time when you're the first person in your family to go to college. And she knows it because she went through it herself. Now, there's actually a number of, of challenges that come up for first-gen students, and I think most of them I experienced them myself. And I think the first one is it's just kind of feeling that guilt of like, well, I'm here to do school and I'm not performing the way I used to be. So also go from like, you know, not being at home. I, I was lucky enough to be able to live on campus. For any student, that would be amazing. But for someone like me, right, that comes from my family, that's very, very tight in that, you know, we worked every weekend together and, and kind of like knowing that I wasn't there for for all the drama that was happening at home to help out um, was actually really stressful. So there's a lot of kind of guilt there. There's a lot of obviously challenges with adjusting to the new community that I was in, right? I was the only Latina in my hall. So it was really hard to connect with people there. And they didn't understand and I didn't understand, you know, where they were coming from, Um, you know, not knowing how to deal with my emotions. And like later I found out, well, you know, what I was experiencing was probably anxiety and I I should have probably talked to someone about it. And so it was just a lot of new things that were happening and I didn't really know how to interpret them. This time of year is particularly tough for kids, right, John? Yes, the first semester is kind of a critical time that determines, you know, whether or not you stay in college for a bunch of reasons, not just the grades you got. Depending on what, how finals go, I think it's a big decision point for students, right? If they do well, like, I belong here, I could do this. If they don't do well, like, hey, maybe this isn't the place for me. And so that's kind of our way of intervening with care packages, right, to remind them, like, regardless of what happens, right, we're going to be here for you. Our team is on through, we, we take off about a week um, over Christmas break, but that's usually our busiest time, right, when students are questioning, when they're getting their grades back. I often get calls where students are having meltdowns because they didn't pass a class or two or they're on academic probation and so that's kind of like the determining factor where students are like well and you know oftentimes everything kind of lines up and they find every challenge that's happening in their life then becomes a reason to leave the campus right and so that's kind of where we come in and, and kind of help them like actually let's separate everything out. if you leave school your family problems are not going to go away You know, Zadie, I was really impressed with Dulce. She's a wise woman for 27. And I think part of it is that, as she said, she's lived it. But, you know, the school makes an effort to keep contact with students right after they graduate through the first year and beyond. So she's spoken to a lot of these students and she knows them personally. And she and the mentors make plenty of time to hear how they're experiencing school and what they can do for them. I think it really must make a really big difference for kids who don't have the support at home from parents who have been through that experience themselves. It's not that the first generation students don't have family support, they do. But if they don't have family members who've been through college, it can be really confusing and hard. And to have someone who does know you and feels sort of like a family member and who has been through that experience, seems like it would make a big difference. The other thing that the school does is really stresses communidad, community, that they form from ninth grade on through graduation. And they stress that once you graduate, you have a responsibility not only to your community, but to other students coming up to share your experiences. And they put videos on their website, and then they ask each student that they see, give us some advice that we can then pass on to next year's senior class. I love that. 
CSU is really trying to recognize that it needs to pay more attention to the social emotional lives of their students, but it's a big place, and that's why it really helps to have a small school reaching out, and, and I was really impressed. As we look ahead to 2020, an issue we'll be following will be the continuing debate on whether the state's primary source of K-12 funding, the local control funding formula, should be changed. Some argue that school districts are not accountable enough for the money they spend on low-income, foster, and homeless students and English learners. Those are the high-need students that the 2013 law singled out as deserving significantly more funding. The State Board of Education has sought a balance between giving districts flexibility to spend the money as they determine after taking into consideration the recommendations of students, parents, and teachers, and to proving that the extra funding is raising student success by a lot of measures. But last month in a highly critical in-depth audit of spending in three school districts, Oakland, San Diego, and Clovis, State Auditor Elaine Howell found some instances where the money wasn't spent on the targeted students. Mostly, she found it is impossible to determine both how the money was spent and whether it's being used effectively to raise achievement. She couldn't find it in the key document where districts are required to report the spending, called the Local Control and Accountability Plan, known by its acronym the LCAP. To get two different views, we spoke with David Sapp. He's the assistant legal counsel for the state board and with Democratic Assemblywoman Shirley Weber of San Diego. I spoke with Sapp first. In January, the state board will do a major revision of the LCAP form, spelling out in more detail and with more clarity how districts are required to account for the spending and to justify the programs and the hiring decisions that they make. Sapp said the changes are in response to concerns they've heard from the public for years about the LCAP form that districts have to fill out to show their spending. It's difficult to understand and track within the current template, sometimes across a hundred pages, What I kind of think of is what's going on, like how are the funds being used to what end, what sorts of things are being done with them. And these new summary tables really will make it easy for stakeholders and also for, you know, the folks at the districts who are working on these themselves to kind of see in one place what's going on, what are we doing, what are those strategies, and understand how the dollars are supporting those actions and where those dollars are coming from. What is the message, though? Because there will be lots of legislators who will say, we have not seen the results after billions of dollars. The achievement gaps that I think everyone is rightly focused on and that you, John, just alluded to persisted and in many instances grew under the old approach that the state had prior to LCFF, which was very much driven by looking you know, primarily just was a dollar spent on the thing that it was designed for. And that really distracted from what I think the supporters of LCFF, and at least I personally believe is a more important question, which is, are those funds actually leading to improved outcomes for students? The people who are criticizing LCFF, in some ways you could look at them calling to go back to what we've tried before that hasn't worked. And instead, I think that another way to look at it is let's continue with what we're doing. I don't don't think anyone would claim that everything's perfect, that we're where we want to be. But to look at it is how can we continue to improve the system that we have? I would point as one example, the new LCAP template is continuing to improve. This is an unprecedented level of transparency. There certainly is going to be a policy conversation the coming year. I think the audit report alluded to it, this question of, is there a way where the state can get a better understanding of how funds are being used within LCAPs? 
and that that's definitely a, 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 an issue that is ripe for policy discussion. There are ways to go about doing it that don't significantly undermine you know, LCFF's core principles and contrast some of the approaches which would drive us back to an accounting-oriented view of accountability that might distract from the focus on improving outcomes. When the audit says that districts, at least the three that the auditor looked at, failed to really explain the justification for how this money would be used effectively to serve these high-need students, and the implication is that the counties really needed to call them into account for that. They need to take a stronger hand and not simply pass the LCAP and say, okay, you know, you, we check we, we check the boxes, we see it, and it's okay. What do you think about that? Even prior to the audit coming out, there was going to be uh, clearer directions in that part of the LCAP template, both for districts and for counties that review it, to make clear what's expected. The other piece of it is that, as with many new laws and major changes, As we move further into implementation, people learn more, and there's also greater clarity around expectations. One important part of LCFF is that it also included a complaint process where concerned community members can file a complaint if they think that a district's LCAP doesn't meet legal requirements. And that complaint process has been used and has been very effective. I think that it is a fair point about continuing to hold accountable both the districts and the county offices to do their job and to ensure that they are doing what the law requires. But I think that there is also a lot of examples that show that the system is working and that when things, including all caps that aren't satisfactory, there is a complaint process that's working to address those defects. We've been talking with David Sapp, Deputy Policy Director and Assistant Legal Counsel to the State Board of Education. David, thanks for speaking with us, and we'll be checking back once the final version of the new LCAP template is approved to see whether others think that it meets the expectations that you hope it does. Thank you very much. Louis Friedberg and I also spoke with Assemblywoman Shirley Weber of San Diego. She's a former president of the San Diego Unified Board of Trustees, and she's been a longtime critic of the law. I asked her if she was surprised when she saw what the audit found. No, I was not surprised at all, and in fact had been raising the red flag of alert for probably the last four to five years. Once the LCFF was implemented, it was fairly clear that the schools were not receiving the funding. As I talked to various superintendents and and particularly faculty and others about what was happening at their schools in terms of new programs and new focus, could not get a response from it. And many of the community members couldn't get much of a response from the districts as to how much money did we get and what are we using it for and those kinds of things. So I have been the number one probably critic of LCFF with regards to transparency. And I was actually one of the number one persons helping the governor to pass LCFF when I first came into the legislature in 2013. I just wanted to ask you in terms of the overall strategy or reform, the order didn't say all the funds were misspent or didn't reach the students. I mean, they said some of them. Do you think that the basic reform is still workable and that we just need to tweak it, make sure there's more transparency? Or do you think the whole reform strategy has to be looked at again? Well, you know, the whole idea of local control or site decision making, as we had in San Diego, is a good concept and really works well with many districts. However, 
It doesn't work if there's no accountability. So if we do not put in place the kind of guardrails that need to happen in order to ensure that that money is sent to those students, that we know what the money is being spent for, and that we can even assess the effectiveness of that money, then it's a waste of time. If this had not been a effort to close the achievement gap, some folks may wouldn't think twice about it, but we were sold a bill of goods that this was going to work to close the achievement gap. That across the nation, oftentimes districts that have greater needs because of the nature of the students they have and and the challenges those students face need additional resources. And that's correct. And it's not that difficult to figure out. But if you don't approach it from that position in the beginning, then you're taking the money and doing whatever you think is best. When we were in the process of doing this, it was interesting that many of my districts that are small districts were really, really clear. They said, Dr. Weber, please, please do not allow this money to be used in negotiations because they said if this money falls into the regular pot for negotiations, the children in this district will lose the battle. Now, superintendents told me that. They said put restrictions on how this money can be used and for whom because if not, it will fall into the category, and, they, and he, they said, and we will lose the battle, and the children will lose in terms of trying to make sure that we give them qualitative and quantitative difference of instruction. So they're going to say, here comes Shirley Weber. She's going to reimpose the categorical funding that we got out from under. We're worried about that. What do you say to that? I'm not trying to reinstitute categorical. What I'm trying to say is that there has to be accountability, that when you ask for local control of funding, then you have to be responsible to tell folks what you did with the money because now you have local control and the outcome of what you did with the money. There has to be some sense of responsibility. We don't just give money to, to districts and, and never come back and say, what did you do with them? And how we ended up in the categorical game was because folks had local control and did not meet the needs of the kids who they were supposed to. And so therefore, communities start saying, wait a minute, take my money out and put it in a categorical. We need special money for this. We need money for that. And it ended up with about, what, 20 or more categorical funds because why districts were not going to do what was necessary always for children. The reality is when money gets to the local level, it's a political fight. And oftentimes, uh, those who are least able to advocate for themselves lose out. We've been talking with Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. Uh, Dr. Weber, we look forward to seeing what legislation you do come up with. Thank you for talking with us today. Anytime. John Weber has really strong words for the state board. It seems like they're really far apart. She is insisting that there's got to be a way to show information for legislators and others to see how the spending is made. I mean, it's fundamental to the law. And the state board thinks really that this next version of the LCAP template, as they call it, it will answer many of these questions. One point I think gets lost here is the whole point is to show improvement over time that districts make with this money. And sometimes, you know, you can't do it annually. You can't show some of these measures like improvement in math and English language scores. But the point is, if you can't document it in the LCAP, then for the public, there's no difference between we don't trust how you spend the money. We don't even know if you're using it wisely. So it's really important for districts to be more transparent about how they're spending it and to show, yes, we're trying. Here's what works and what doesn't. It may not bring you these results tomorrow, but give us a chance. But at least we're documenting something for you to know. Well, whatever happens, I hope that it's easy for parents and students to be able to follow. I agree. Let's sign off for 2019 with this enthusiastic voice of Christmas from the students at Steege Elementary in Richmond. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell, 
To all teachers, principals, and school employees in California, we wish you a relaxing, well-earned break from your work. And to all of our listeners, we at EdSource wish you a joyous holiday, and we thank you for your continuing support. We'll be back in 2020, ready to explore issues in California education that are vital to our children and to our school. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and EdSource's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Zadie Stavely. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year.